Good morning, church family. It's wonderful to be able to begin a day of worship with another baptism today. Today, we celebrate the baptism of Taylor Strange, who made her profession of faith at a sister church's D-Now earlier in the year, and she's coming now to be baptized and to show you about her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Taylor, have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? All right, then based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you, my sister in Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. God is good. May we continue to worship today. i 
Amen. Would you do that today? Would you just put your hope and your trust in the Lord today and trust Him for all things, not in any material thing today? Would you do that today? Can you say amen? amen. Welcome to worship. We're delighted you're here. My name is Kevin. Tell me your name. Amen. That's good. We're so glad that you're here. We're delighted that you're here. If you are new with us, we are especially glad that you're here. Would you meet our pastor and his wife at the close of our service so that we might give you a free gift? It is a copy of his book, The, P the Privilege of Worship, and we want to get to know you a little bit better. There's a connection card in your order of worship. Find that. Fill it out so that we might get to know you better. And there's a prayer request time on the back. We pray for you every Tuesday. It's just a way that we connect with you in very special ways. There's a lot going on today. It is an excellent day to be in the house of the Lord here at First Baptist Pineville. Kimberly, come share with us. Our couples, y'all come on up with your babies. All right. Well, today marks a very important day in the lives of these children and their families, and also in the life of our church as we partner together to raise these children in the ways of the Lord. As a church, we're committing today to pray for these parents as they lead their children spiritually. We also are asking you, the congregation today, to partner with these parents by teaching their children at church and modeling a Christ-like lifestyle. Today, we dedicate to the Lord these five precious children. And we're going to start with Parker Wyatt Davis. Parker was born September the 9th, 2019, to Tyler and Emily Davis. He has a big sister, Avery. And if the grandparents are here, when I call your name, you can stand as well. Dale and Donna Weingert, Bobby and Tracy Davis. Great-grandparents are Ray and Iris Rozier. Albert Rayner, Cherry Davis, and they have chosen Parker's Life First to be 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Next, we have Melody Lucille Dunning. Melly was born March 20th, 2019. Her parents are Joe and Marie Dunning. Her older siblings are Tori and Alex. Her grandparents are Melanie Smith and Brenda Gorham, great-grandparents Marjorie Simmons, and they chose for her life first, Joshua 1.9. It says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Next, we have Preston Joel Jacquees. He was born December 3, 2018. His parents are Adam and Laura Jacquees. He had, his older siblings are baby Jacquees in heaven, who would have been five in September, Peyton James and Parker Joseph. Grandparents are Joel and Susan Jacquees, Rusty and Karen Elston. Great-grandparents are George Jacquees and Carolyn Tyler. His life first is Jeremiah 33.3. It says, call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Next, we have Elliot John Meeker. He was born June 6, 2019, to Tyler and Juliana Meeker. Grandparents are Janice and Robert Meeker, Carissa Howley and Christopher Howley. They chose his life first to be Proverbs 22, 6. It says, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. And we have Isabella Rose Mott. Bella was born September 28, 2017. Her parents are Jacob and Catherine Mott. Grandparents are Jimmy and Carolyn Mott. Clay and Brenda Scoggin. Great-grandparents are Don Eldamott, Inez Gardner, and Mary Ann Willis. And they chose her life first to be Romans 15, 13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Stuart. Amen. Church family, isn't it a joy? Yeah, give, give them a hand and give the Lord a hand. 
I'm still looking forward to the day where we make a visit to the Women and Children's Hospital more than we do the regular hospital. And this crew's helping us do that. It's been fun to be able to visit new babies and to, to be able to be with them not long after they're born. I always say, I'm going to make that visit. I love to, to see the fresh babies, as I call them. And, and I'm grateful for these parents who've opened up their arms uh, for us to be able to do that. And, you know, we've had such a baby boom recently that we're actually having to expand our extended session and also our Sunday school in the Bed Babies area. So if you're willing to volunteer in that, Miss Brenda Mills said, can you put a shout out for me? We need help back there, and that is wonderful. So I know everybody signs up for the Bed Babies. So sign up there, but no, they grow up, so you, you need to move up with them as well. Uh, we are so blessed to be able to partner as a church with these parents and their children. This is called parent and child dedication. It's really not baby dedication because the parents are committing themselves to raising up these children in the knowledge of the Lord. And we as a church are saying we're committing to partner with you. And this group of parents are all actively engaged in our church. They're involved in Sunday school. They're involved in other areas of our church as well. So they're plugged in, and so we want to be plugged in with them. Uh, in their training for this particular day, uh, they were taught about Deuteronomy 6, which is the Shema of Israel that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Parents are the primary faith trainers of their children. The church's job is to come alongside the parents and help them point their kids toward Jesus. And so that's what this day is all about. These kids are starting out with their parents on a faith journey. And as a church family, we look forward to the day when I'm getting to do exactly what I got to do with Taylor this morning. When these kids have trusted Christ as their Savior and we're baptizing them, then we'll get to celebrate other things in their life. And, and we'll be walking with them through the journey. God is so good. And God is going to bless these families. And so what I want us to do as a church family, as a way of us joining with them, if you just extend your hands toward them as a way of us all joining in prayer together for them, and we want to pray for each of these families and their precious little ones. All right? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. We thank you for each one of these precious children and their parents. And we ask, God, that you would be with them and bless them in a mighty way. God, grow up these little boys and little girls to be mighty men and women of you. God, we don't know what all the future holds for them, but Lord, you do. And so, God, we ask your blessing on them. We pray for health. We pray, Lord, for protection for them. We pray, God, for a blessing of faith. We pray, God, for a blessing of, of joy in their lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up wonderful doors for them as they grow up. Lord, we look forward to being a part of their lives as a church family. Lord, bless their parents. Give them the wisdom they need as they invest in their kids. Be with their Sunday school teachers and Bible school teachers and children and youth leaders in the future, Lord, as we all invest in them. Lord, may you do exceedingly beyond what we could ask or imagine in these kids' lives. We thank you, Lord, that your hand is already on them, and we look forward to what you're going to do in the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful thing to see this many families to dedicate themselves and their children to the Lord. This morning's been a full morning with baptism and parent-child dedication. And also you see on each side of, of the stage, you see hundreds of Operation Christmas Child boxes, shoe boxes, that will go to boys and girls all over the world as another opportunity to be a witness to the world of the love of Jesus Christ. Not only is it about the gifts that are packed in these boxes, but each child that receives a box also has the opportunity to go through a 12-week course where they hear about this Jesus that we love and, and why 
we do Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. They get to hear about a God that loves them and loves them right where they are, but loves them enough to not leave them and desert them and wants a relationship with them. And so they hear about that through Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. Church family, thank you for being obedient to pack a box to send around the world so others may hear about Jesus. Will you pray with me, please, as we dedicate these boxes? Oh, Lord, thank you that boys and girls, which means families, moms and dads, grandparents, communities, whole villages around the globe will hear about you and your love, some maybe for the first time, God. Lord, I pray that you use all of these boxes that will be packed and will be sent literally around the globe. May people be drawn to you, Father. May they come to know your love and your sacrifice for them, Father. What a privilege it is for us to be able to do that, Father. So we look forward to hearing and seeing what it is that you do through these shoeboxes, Father. Thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and to praise your name this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How great is our God. Amen. We sing to him today. Would you stand to your feet and let's worship together. The splendor of the
Micah 6.8 says, And what does the Lord expect of us but to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? Father, implicit in that is that we use the resources and the blessings that you have given us to serve others 
and that we recognize that all that we have comes from you. Now at this time, take what we offer this morning as an offering of love and as an offering given freely for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Aren't you grateful for our choir and worship ministry? They do such a wonderful job. And I just want to say a thank you to all of them here before you all this morning 
for last Sunday night and Monday with the pastor's conference. Our music ministry did an incredible job, made our church really proud. And, and those of you who were serving as greeters and ushers and, and courtesy team members and parkers and all of that for the pastor's conference, thank you so much for giving of your time. Uh, we heard so many positive things from fellow church members from other uh, churches around the state about how much it meant to be here with us, worshiping uh, here in this sanctuary and experiencing God over those de that day and a half. And so thank you, church family, for all that you did, for your hospitality. Thank you to our staff for all of their great work as well. We've been blessed with a great campus, and it's wonderful to be able to use that in ministry beyond just our own ministries, but to minister to our fellow church member at churches uh, throughout our state and even beyond that. It was January 24th, 1848. James Marshall was working at a sawmill by the American River when he found a piece of shining metal on the river floor. The metal turned out to be gold. And within weeks, as word of the find spread, tens of thousands of people flocked to the area and the California gold rush was on. Ships were abandoned along the California coast. Businesses even closed down. Entire towns became deserted as people flocked to where the gold had been found. And over the next few years, at least 300,000 gold seekers came to California. Gold Fever led to an insatiable desire for more. More land, more rivers, more gold. And the effect on Native Americans in California was catastrophic as miners drove them off their lands. And those who weren't killed by miners slowly starved to death or died from diseases. And as a result, the California Native American population fell from around 150,000 in 1845 to just 30,000 in 1870. The gold rush was what we might call savage materialism. In some ways, our quest for more hasn't improved all that much in all those years. Materialism has overtaken Western society and may be our most ignored sin. In this series, we've identified areas in our culture where the lines between right and wrong have become blurred. We've talked about some big topics over the last few weeks, racism and, and gender dysphoria, homosexuality. And, and as challenging as those uh, issues were, uh, the issue of materialism is, is a very um, challenging one. But I did want to put a caveat here. I am preaching on materialism right before the holidays and Black Friday. Don't worry, next Sunday's message is not about gluttony, in case you were wondering if that was coming up. <laughs> you know, in our affluent society, we struggle with how rightly to handle our money. Um, some people say the answer is socialism, that everybody should just kind of have the same amount. Or others say you just get all you can any way you can. But our job is not to listen to others. Our job is to listen to the Bible. You know, the Bible has a clear word on materialism. Materialism is putting hope in stuff instead of God. And Jesus warned us in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. We must not put our hope in money instead of in God. Now, nowhere in the Bible is there a ban on making money or even having wealth. In the Bible, you're not considered greedy if you have more than someone else or materialistic if you have nice stuff. In fact, the Bible contains a lot of instruction about how to make money and how to manage money rightly. However, in 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 
In Paul's day, those who are rich might have been a small group. But when we read those who are rich, that's all of us. Because all of us in our day are wealthy compared to two-thirds of the world. In fact, all of us are filthy wealthy compared to two-thirds of the world. It isn't a sin to be wealthy, but it is a sin to misuse our wealth. You are materialistic not when you have stuff, but when you put your hope in your stuff. A hoarder with a pile of junk can actually be more materialistic than the lady with 250 pairs of shoes. Ladies are saying, amen. <laughs> Whether the hope is in the junk or the shoes is what matters. If the hope is in the stuff instead of God, you've got a problem with materialism. Think about how this happen, happens to us and how we put our hope in our money. We often put our hope in our money by trying to buy happiness. We buy a, a new shirt, and we feel great about it. We feel great about ourselves. We're proud we were able to get this shirt. Maybe we hit a sale until we run into a friend who has bought a whole new outfit. We buy a new car, and we feel great about it ourselves, great about it, great about ourselves, until next year when the design changes and our friend buys the brand new model. And we easily fall into materialism in a way and in an effort to buy happiness. It creeps up on you. In fact, it happened to me this week. Uh, when I got home from the Louisiana Baptist Convention Tuesday night, I sat down in my chair talking to Rebecca. I said, I need to upgrade my wardrobe. Then I named pastors and denominational leaders that I had seen over the last couple of days. I said, you know, so-and-so, man, he got some cool shirts. So-and-so's got these cool shoes, man. I got to figure out where you get those. And, and their suits and all, everything was just nice. Forget the fact that they had probably just bought all that for the convention itself. But I was like, man, I, by the time I went to bed, I was planning a shopping spree to Lafayette or Shreveport or somewhere. But the next morning, God got all over me. It's like God said, you're preaching on materialism on Sunday? What was that last night? And I quickly grew rather content. This suit is eight years old that I'm wearing today, just so you know. We try to buy happiness. We also try to buy security. Our child is born, and we Google, you've done this, how much will college cost in 2037? Parents, here it is that we just dedicated your children. $500,000 for four years. So after you pick yourself off the floor, if you've passed out, you start a college fund and you start socking it away to give our kids hope for a future. We start hitting the 40s, and suddenly we realize, my parents retired at 55, and there ain't no way that's happening. May I be able to make 65 or, or maybe 75, Lord? I hope I can make 85. So we read some, some stuff on how much we need for retirement, and, and we assess where we are, and we come up with a plan to get there so that we will have security. Then there's insurance. We buy life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, cancer insurance, all kind of insurance. How much do we need? As much as you can afford, we're told. So we dig deep. We get the best policies we can. We're worth more dead or hurt than we are alive and healthy. But at least we have some security. Then there's tithing. Mercy, with everything else we need to do, how in the world can we give God 10%? But we don't realize, though, that our lack of tithing indicates a lack of faith in God. Instead, we're putting our faith in our money and our ability to manage it. And so we save and we invest and we, and we chase interest rates. And as we watch our accounts grow with time, we put more hope in them. But so often we find that we never are at peace. We may have way more than we did 10 years ago, but we still worry about what we'll have 10 years from now. And the more we have, the more stress we have. And the more we have, the more we want. And the more we get, the less content we become. This week, while reading an article on the internet about the effects of materialism on society, I, I just all of a sudden noticed all down the side of my screen and put into the article were ads. And guess how they were targeting me? Men's clothes and shoes. 
I hadn't searched anything. It's like the, the devil was telling the computer to put it out there again, you know. But that, I, I just started laughing because that's why we have a struggle with this. Because we're constantly bombarded with the messages. You'll feel better. You'll look better. You'll be better if you buy this. You deserve this. You need this. Money can buy happiness. Money can buy security. And none of that is true. Yes, we can have nice things. Yes, we need to save for the future. The Bible teaches both of those. But when we try to buy our happiness and buy our security, we have entered the realm of materialism. So how, how can we break the hold of materialism and avoid being sucked into its vortex? Well, Paul gives us some excellent instruction in our text for today. If you haven't gotten there already, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. It's often been said that the Bible says more about money than it does any other subject. And that is true. And I think that is because God knows that money is a necessary tool. It can be a wonderful blessing, but it can also be a mortal snare. One author said that Jesus talked about money so much because money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate connection between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Another author said, the real measure of our wealth is how much we would be worth if we lost it all. Did you catch that? The real measure of our wealth is how much we would be worth if we lost it all. In other words, the way you hold your stuff tells a lot about how you hold your God. Paul demonstrates this in our passage. He begins by giving us a formula. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness plus contentment equals Great gain. And then he actually ends this passage also with a formula. At the end of verse 10, we read, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So there we see eagerness for money leads to wandering from the faith, which equals great grief. Let's see what Paul is getting at here. Let's begin first with that first formula In verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is pursuing God and his priorities with your life. Essentially, godliness is, is living for God every day. Your priorities are God's priorities. Godliness is a rather easy concept to, to grasp. But what about contentment? What is that? We tend to think it's having less than we do now. Like, we feel bad for what we have. Well, I, I need to be, you know, get rid of most of my stuff, and, and then I'd be content. Well, some years ago, a popular author wrote a book that, in part, challenged people to downsize their home. And as I recall, his family had downsized from a 2,500-square-foot house to a 1,500-square-foot house. And when I read the, the book, I thought, you know, why is 1,500 square feet more godly than 2,500 square feet when most people in the world live in less than 200 square feet? I mean, what is that about? I, I get the desire for, to, to fight materialism and fund missions. I, I get the desire uh, that, and the knowledge that our materialism, especially in home buying, is sometimes just off the charts out of control. But the size of your home doesn't necessarily indicate whether you are content or materialistic. The size of your heart is what determines that. If you can afford a home, no matter its size, if you can afford your home, no matter its size, and you use it as a center for your family's ministry, great. However, if you are a financial slave to your home, no matter the size it is, and you don't use it for the center of ministry of your family, then you need to check your heart. Contentment is not necessarily having less than you have 
Now it's a matter of the heart. Nor does contentment mean that you cannot have dreams or, or try to better yourself. In fact, the Bible encourages dreams. The Bible encourages bettering yourself. Read the blessings promised to Israel. It was a land flowing with milk and honey was where God was taken to them. He had blessings in store. Read Proverbs. Read Jeremiah 29, 11 that says God has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Contentment does not forget, forbid having nice stuff. Contentment focuses your heart on the right stuff. So how do we gain contentment? Well, Paul tells us in the next couple of verses, verse 7 and 8, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So here's how we get contentment according to Paul here. We have an eternal focus, and we have a gratitude for our met needs. First, an eternal focus. Paul tells us in verse 7 that we brought nothing into this world, and we take nothing out of it. So material gain is for this world only. From an eternal perspective, material gain is irrelevant and greed is irrational. You, Paul is telling us you came into this world broke and you will leave this world broke. You began your life spending your, your mom and daddy's money. You'll leave this life with your kids spending your money. Let that sink in a minute. <laughs> your money is a temporary thing. That should be used for eternal purposes in this temporal world. And your family and God's work are those eternal purposes. Contentment comes when God's eternal priorities become our personal priorities. An eternal focus begins by investing in God's work by trusting God with the tithe, the first 10% given to God sets your priorities. And then you make sure that everything else in your life is driven by an eternal focus. So your home and your car, however nice they are, are not status symbols, but they are tools for ministry. Your bank account and investments no longer are security blankets, but are pools of resources that can be utilized in God's time to invest in his eternal focus through your, your, through your church or some other work of ministry or your family. So contentment begins with an eternal focus, looking beyond the here and the now, but it continues with a gratitude for our met needs. Paul says, if, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If we have the bare necessities, we should be grateful and content. And that's, that's a challenging verse because every single one of us in this room has those things. In fact, we have way more than those things, right? I mean, we don't just have food. We have pantries and freezers full of food. Uh, we don't just have clothes on our back right now, but we can go home to our house and we have closets and chest of drawers full of clothes. We have our needs met over and above, so we should be grateful. And we are. We are. Anybody not grateful for having plenty of food, plenty of clothes? We are grateful. But we still have to fight the materialistic calling to get even more, don't we? Godliness plus contentment is great gain. What, what's that? The false teachers in Timothy's day were like the TV preachers of the first century. They were selling Jesus for a buck. You read about that earlier in this chapter. And Paul tells Timothy, son, the great God gain from godliness and contentment isn't a big bank account. It's impact on the world for Christ. That's the great gain. The great gain comes from an eternal investment that never stops paying dividends. So what does great gain look like? Well, think about our church. A group of people 108 years ago invested in planning a church in this city. None of those people are alive today. None of us could list all their names. Very few of their descendants are in the church today. 
However, because of the investment of those people 108 years ago, about 700 people participate in the life of this church now, and tens of thousands of people have called this church home over those 108 years. At least $100 million has been invested in ministry and missions through those years through this church. Pastors and missionaries have been sent out from this church. Other churches have been started by this church. People have met Jesus here and then moved away and plugged into other churches and done great things for God. All told, the return on investment of those people 108 years ago could never be measured. It was an eternal investment that has never stopped paying dividends. But what if they'd never done it? What if they'd said, why start a church in Pineville? I can read the Bible at home and I can spend my money on myself. What if they had fallen into materialism instead of investing in this church? Would we be here today? Would those of you who've met Christ through the ministry of this church be saved today? Uh, there's no way to know, but we do know that because they invested way back then, we are here today, and our lives are changed because of the ministry of this church. Those people in the early 1900s that met in that shack did what Paul encourages in verses 18 to 19. Paul tells Timothy, command these people to do good to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Man, I love that statement. The life that is truly life. What we think is life really isn't life. What Madison Avenue tells us is life really isn't life. The good life isn't found in a mansion or on a beach or on a mountain or in a new suit of clothes. The good life is found when we can look around and see what God is doing through us and because of us. Because we've taken our wealth and we've invested it in God's kingdom work. We're using what he's given us. We're giving away for others to be able to use it and we're building up his kingdom Hope and contentment isn't found in more stuff. Hope and contentment is found in Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for those people 108 years ago who lived like that. Aren't you? So what are we doing about those who will be here 108 years from now? People who won't know our names, but who will need to know the name of Jesus. What kind of investment are, are we making in them? What kind of investment are you making in them? Are you giving to the Lord's work? Are you using your home as a place of ministry? Are you ministering through the areas of influence that God has given you? Your, your work, your hobbies, the sports teams, the business, the, the school, and more. All of the places where our life scatters. If we will have godliness and contentment today, the results that we will watch from heaven will be great gain. By way of contrast, Paul shows that the results of greed and materialism is a downward spiral. Look back to verse 9 and 10. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The end of these two verses is that second equation, that eagerness for money leads to a wandering from the faith, which then brings great grief. Paul says that, the, that money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money is evil. It is neutral. It is one of uh, the greatest resources that we have for good, for God's work, but it is also one of the enemy's greatest tools to pull us away from God. A love of money can pull us away from the purposes of God and even become our 
God. Yes, an eagerness for money leads to a wandering from the faith and eventually results in grief, no matter the size of the portfolio. Notice the difference between these two equations. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Eagerness leads to wandering and great grief. Isn't it interesting that the path that the world thinks will bring great gain actually brings great grief, while the one the world says would bring grief actually brings great gain. You see, godly wisdom always turns the wisdom of the world on its head. So how can we sum it all up? What's the message in a couple of sentences? I think it's this. Materialism hopes in stuff and leads to grief. Contentment hopes in God and leads to gain. It was daybreak. August 25th, A.D. 79. A family of four runs down an alley, desperately trying to escape the city of Pompeii. Leading the way is a middle-aged man carrying gold jewelry, a sack of coin, and the keys to his house. Racing to keep up with him are his two small daughters. Close behind is their mother. Scrambling frantically through the rubble, she clutches an amber statuette of a curly-haired boy, probably Cupid, and the family silver, including a medallion of fortune, the goddess of luck. But neither amulets nor deities nor treasures can help them that day. The four are overtaken and killed by an incandescent cloud of scorching gases and ash from Mount Vesuvius. Outside the city, another lady runs, her hands full of rings and bracelets, necklaces, chains, and other treasures, and even as torrents of lava pour down from Mount Vesuvius and ash rains down, she cannot leave behind her possessions. Overcome by the heat, she falls, her treasures scattering around her, and soon she and they are buried right where they fell. So many people on that fateful day were clinging to treasures that could not save them when they needed saving the most. You can see them in the museums. But in a moment, what was valuable became worthless. Our hope cannot be found in stuff. Our security cannot be grounded in stuff. Our happiness cannot be determined by stuff. Your hope, your security, your happiness must be found. It must be grounded. It must be determined by God. Because you see, how you hold your stuff tells a lot about how you hold your God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are very blessed and we're grateful for it. Lord, we are thankful that we have jobs. We're grateful that most of us have really good jobs. We're grateful that we have what we need and way more than we need. And Lord, we are thankful for that. Lord, help us when we're, we're tempted to fall victim to materialism, to be able to step back and to pursue you a little more. Lord, help us to be able to rejoice when you bless us and may we rejoice when you command us to give. Lord, may we be a blessing because we are blessed. Lord, I thank you for our church family. And I thank you, God, for all that you're doing within us. And I thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that you would just bless us more so that we can do even more for your kingdom. We want to be a generation like that generation was 108 years ago. We want to invest in the future we want to make great things take place as you command us to go forward as your church. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. It's a challenging word, but we're grateful for it. Help us to walk in obedience to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.